Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look at the tensions between China and Taiwan, the tensions between China and the U.S. vis-a-vis Taiwan, the tensions between Russia, Europe, and the U.S. vis-a-vis China and Taiwan, and the tensions between these small-minded struggles for global power and the dangers posed to the human race by nuclear weapons. Clips today are from Al Jazeera, Today Explained, Democracy Now!, The Bradcast, and The Majority Report, with additional members-only clips from On the Media and Democracy Now! Taiwan is an island stuck in a kind of political limbo. It's a democratic, self-governing territory. Just over the water is China, which claims Taiwan as its own, but many Taiwanese take issue with that. Then you add in the U.S., which has taken on the role of neighborhood cop, and you end up with Taiwan as the focus for many big competing interests. But to understand how we got here, you have to know the backstory. Taiwan was ruled by Imperial China for 200 years. Then Japan had it for 50 years after winning a war against China. But when Japan lost in World War II, China, one of the victors, got Taiwan back again. Then you had the Chinese Civil War. Mao Zedong's communist forces took over the mainland, while the other side, the nationalist forces of Chiang Kai-shek, escaped to Taiwan. So in 1949, China sort of split in two. And you had two rival governments, one in Taiwan, one in Beijing, both claiming they were the true government of China. The side in Taiwan was known as the Republic of China, the ROC, and that's still the island's official name today. And on the mainland, the Communist Party declared a brand new Chinese state, the People's Republic of China, PRC for short. Now remember, the US wasn't exactly a fan of communism. And so it was the ROC in Taiwan that mostly got the international recognition, including a seat at the UN. But by the 1970s, that seat didn't really make sense anymore. The UN passed a resolution confirming the representatives from the PRC as the only lawful representatives of China to the United Nations. And so the ROC was out. We are being deserted. We are being forsaken. So what does all this mean for Taiwan's political status today? Well, it leaves it in that limbo we talked about at the beginning. Now, from Beijing's perspective, it's pretty clear. China is one country and Taiwan is part of it. Right now, the island governs itself, but Beijing's position is that eventually it'll be reunited with the mainland. And lately, Chinese President Xi Jinping has been emphasizing that a lot and linking it to his big policy known as national rejuvenation. So what about Taiwan's status according to Taiwan? Well, the president, Tsai Ing-wen, and her party have never fully accepted the idea that Taiwan is a part of China. But at the same time, they're not explicitly pushing for Taiwan to be recognized as independent. It is a bit of a fudge, really. They say that Taiwan is effectively independent, so they just want things to stay the way they are. Okay, so what about the U.S.? Well, their position is also a bit of a fudge. It even has an official name, strategic ambiguity. On the one hand, they do acknowledge that Taiwan is a part of China and not an independent country. There's no official U.S. embassy in Taipei, for example. 
But on the other hand, they sort of want China to leave Taiwan alone. And the U.S. has suggested they would defend Taiwan militarily in certain circumstances. There are, are reports that the United States has made clear to China that it would defend Taiwan um, if um, Chinese attack is unprovoked. And uh, on the flip side, that it's made clear to Taiwan that it will not come to Taiwan's aid um, if the Chinese attack is provoked. So that's the big picture. If things spin out of control, we could potentially be talking about a war between the U.S. and China. It means that when things are tense around Taiwan, it's a big deal. And things have been getting tense. Under President Donald Trump, the U.S. got a lot cozier with Taiwan than previous presidents. And Biden's administration has effectively continued in the same direction. Over in Taiwan, the political climate shifted in 2016 when President Tsai Ing-wen took over from a pro-Beijing president. She's been pretty outspoken against Beijing. And the question of Taiwan's status has taken on new significance after people in Taiwan saw what China did in Hong Kong. The people of Taiwan saw what they treated Hong Kong. We just realized that their promises, it's not something we can trust. Hong Kong uh, has been completely absorbed into China. The last remaining piece that is missing uh, is Taiwan. Then you add the fact that both Taiwan and China are expanding their military. So when we see headlines about China flying 150 warplanes near Taiwan and the U.S., according to this Wall Street Journal report, secretly deploying troops there, well, it's no small thing. The potential for war does exist. I do not think it is very high, but I do believe it is growing. And there are a few other factors that raise the stakes even higher when we're talking about Taiwan. First up, its location. It sits in what's called the first island chain in the Western Pacific that extends to Japan in the north, all the way down to Indonesia in the south, going through the Philippines. And uh, so if China were to take over Taiwan and deploy PLA forces in, you know, on Taiwan, that would truly pose an existential threat to Japan. And uh, Japan, of course, is a very important ally of the United States. Then there are those microchips we mentioned earlier. Taiwan is a world leader when it comes to semiconductor technology. The tiny chips that the world has come to rely on, they're in everything from smartphones to aircraft. As far as the smallest, most advanced chips go, around 90% of them are made in Taiwan. This actually is a capability that China is aspiring to. And so then there's this very important question of what would happen um, if China controlled that production. The other big thing about Taiwan is that it acts as a kind of lightning rod for the big political rivalry between the U.S. and China and how they see themselves and each other. From the Chinese perspective, it just seems like king of the mountain. The U.S. Uh, is the most powerful economic, military, and political uh, country in the world, and they want to stay that way. Taiwan is now um, a mature and vibrant democracy, and the United States has a long-standing commitment um, to protecting and advancing democracy. Let's not forget about the 24 million people who live there. A recent poll suggests around 10% of Taiwanese say they want unification with China at some point. 34% say they want independence at some point. But a majority, 51%, say they simply want to keep things the way they are forever. Most people believe that the best scenario for Taiwan for the, uh, the, the short run at least, is just kicking the can down the road. 
helping Taiwan to preserve its freedoms, continue to have economic prosperity, having uh, a limited voice in the international community, uh, but being able uh, to essentially be an autonomous entity. Things with Taiwan might be ambiguous, but maybe it's better that way. Maybe Taiwan is an example where doing nothing is actually the best option. China's policy toward Taiwan, and I mean both its official policy and also the way it behaves toward Taiwan. The official policy is that there is, you know, one China. And by the way, I should say that the U.S. believes in that too. That is the one China policy. Taiwan is a separate entity. Beijing believes that Taipei is not its own capital, that it belongs to China. And so the sort of official policy is that eventually there will be the reunification of the island. And so it's been decades in which, you know, sort of a democratic Taiwan has built up basically off the shores of a very communist China. And so the, the goal is, you know, perhaps with economic integration, perhaps with change in Taiwan's own politics, or just given enough time, there will be a reunification. The thing that worries a lot of people, and a lot of people here in the U.S. especially, is that China may grow impatient. And especially with a, you know, authoritarian leader in Xi Jinping, um, and especially with other, you know, Internal politics, dictators have politics too. We always forget, seem to forget that. You know, there are people that might consider she weak for allowing the U.S. to still defend Taiwan. So this is sort of leading to some concerns that China is gearing up for an invasion of Taiwan, um, not imminently, not anytime soon, but soon enough. The Chinese timeline, let's say, and I'm making this up, is like 20 years from now. Well, the American timeline, and of course the Taiwanese timeline, is never, <laughs> never do that. Okay, so Nancy Pelosi's visit is making a lot of people tense. Did she get approval for this trip from President Biden? No, the opposite. <laughs> you know, um, well, actually, not even the opposite. Biden didn't call her, as far as we know, and say, please don't go. What Pelosi heard was a lot of anger through the media uh, about what U.S. officials were, were thinking. White House officials, oh, why would we start another fight when we've got the Russia-Ukraine thing going on? And we don't want China to actually start helping Russia in that fight. But what's been interesting, the administration's stance has changed uh, and changed in the sense that they're like, look, you know, if she's going to go, we're going to do what we can to defend her. It's her right to go. You know, we're never going to list, you know, kowtow to what a Chinese leader is saying. You know, if she wants to go, we will not be intimidated. And this was said from the White House podium. Put simply, there is no reason for Beijing to turn a potential visit consistent with longstanding U.S. policy into some sort of crisis or conflict, or use it as a pretext to increase aggressive military activity in or around the Taiwan Strait. President Biden didn't want her to go. What about her Republican colleagues, many of whom share her hawkishness on China? What do they think about this? They're delighted. Uh, it's a you know big deal. Uh, and, and look, let's not you know sugarcoat this. Like it is a massive deal that she's going because what it shows is that it's you know the highest ranking. Democrat in decades to show up in Taiwan, and it's the highest ranking American to show up in, in you know, since 1997 in Taiwan. And Republicans like it because there has been sort of a shift in Republican thinking on Taiwan. And I should say among some Democrats as well, but mostly Republicans, they don't like that the U.S. has what's called a strategic ambiguity you know, stance towards Taiwan, which basically means that if China were to invade Taiwan, 
the U.S. is not going to signal what it's going to do, whether it's going to defend Taiwan or whether it's not. You know, Republicans have told me they've been very open about this. You know, we should get rid of this. Get it done. We will defend Taiwan is what they want. Like, let, why make it ambiguous? And that's not what Pelosi is going to Taiwan to say, as far as we know. But it does sort of show a, a level of closeness and integration that could lead eventually down the line to like, you know, why wouldn't we defend Taiwan? Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's a commitment we made. And I should note, uh, President Joe Biden has three times said the U.S. would defend Taiwan in case of an invasion, although his team has always walked it back. Today, they insisted our policy has not changed and that the president is simply committed to provide Taiwan with the military means to defend itself, as he has in Ukraine. You know, it's sort of this fascinating moment where, you know, especially former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was like, hey, she should absolutely go. And then you've had the former uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper, also for Trump, who was just there basically say, you know, the one China policy has outlived its usefulness. I think if the speaker wants to go, she should go. So she's, again, not going there to back a Republican stance, but it's interesting that Republicans are backing her trip and Democrats are the ones who are sort of mostly wary about it. But I, I also want to reiterate, you know, Pelosi has bucked the Democratic Party for years on China. And mostly she's been a, a fierce advocate for small D democratic norms in that country. Uh, for human rights, and that, you know, those issues have become increasingly problematic as Xi Jinping's leadership continues. You know, the crackdown on Hong Kong, the, te the detention, the forcible detention of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, um, and his consolidation of power to the point that he could be leader for life. So, you know, her going to Taiwan at a moment when there's fear that eventually there could be an invasion, you know, it's unsurprising that she feels that way and is doing this and that Republicans are backing her because she has been sort of on her hawkish stance for China, more, I would say, on where Republicans have longer been than where Democrats are. Alex, do you think Taiwanese leaders feel that they're running a risk with this visit, or are they happy to have Nancy Pelosi there, even though it's drawn a lot of, it's drawn a lot of attention from China? I mean, a bit of both. I mean, I've talked to some Taiwanese officials, and they are saying, look, you know, we're worried about what this means. There's no illusions that China is just going to, you know, sit this one out, right? They're expecting maybe missiles to be shot in the Taiwan Strait, you know, near um, Taiwan itself. Uh, more planes, more ships near the island, you know, perhaps some cyber attack or something. You know, there's, there's tons of possibilities. So there's a bit, they're a bit fearful, right? It's, it's not like this will be, uh, this will just move on by. And of course, it's not like a war is going to break out because of this visit, but the chance of miscalculation rises. And that doesn't make anyone feel good. But the other part of it is like, yeah, hell yeah, <laughs> we're happy to have Nancy Pelosi here um, because it shows how close America and Taiwan are now, you know, how much the U.S. really does seem to care about uh, the, the plight of Taiwan and sort of all those other things. And it's sort of interesting because, you know, it, at the inauguration, Taiwan's lead representative, not ambassador, but lead representative to the U.S. showed up uh, there, which was the first time in a while. And then in uh, early 2021, the U.S. ambassador to Palau went to Taiwan, being the first U.S. envoy to be there since, you know, the U.S. changes policy in 1979. So there's been sort of a closer um, relationship now. Um, and Pelosi going there is just basically the icing on the cake. As Speaker Pelosi's plan
plane landed in Taiwan, the Washington Post published an op-ed she'd written called Why I'm Leading a Congressional Delegation to Taiwan. Quote, in the face of the Chinese Communist Party's accelerating aggression, our congressional delegation's visit should be seen as an unequivocal statement that America stands with Taiwan, our democratic partner, as it defends itself and its freedom. Well, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has left Taiwan after a series of high-profile meetings that increased tensions with China, making her the most senior U.S. official to visit Taiwan in 25 years. Pelosi met with Taiwan's president and Taiwanese lawmakers. Their encounter was partly broadcast online. It's really clear that while China has stood in the way of Taiwan participating and going to certain meetings, that they understand that they will not stand in the way of people coming to Taiwan. It's a show of friendship, of support, but also a source of learning about how we can work together better in collaboration. Pelosi discussed economic plans, including a possible trade deal between Taiwan and the United States, and met with key pro-democracy activists. Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, said she welcomed Pelosi's visit. Speaker's presence here in Taiwan serves to boost public confidence in the strength of our democracy as a foundation to our partnership with the United States. Meanwhile, China responded to Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, in part by announcing plans to carry out new air and naval drills and long-range live-fire exercises in six areas around Taiwan, beginning Thursday. Taiwan said the military exercises are, quote, tantamount to an air and sea blockade of Taiwan. This is a spokeswoman for the Chinese foreign ministry. The relevant actions of the Chinese military are a deterrent to the separatist forces in Taiwan and are justified. You mentioned the issue of navigation in the waters. We have never seen any problems with the freedom of navigation in the waters. I think you should pay more attention to how U.S. warships and military aircraft have come so far right up to China's doorstep to show off their force. This comes as the U.S. is holding a massive military training exercise in the region with Indonesia, Australia, Japan and Singapore for the first half of August, with 5,000 soldiers on the island of Sumatra. This is the commanding general of the U.S. Army Pacific, Charles Flynn. With all of the technical and procedural aspects of this, it's just a really important expression of our, uh, our teamwork and our interoperability and our uh, our, uh, our unity, really, as, uh, as a group of nations that uh, are, you know, seek to continue to have a free and open Indo-Pacific. For more, we're joined by two guests. In Taipei, Taiwan, Brian Chisheng Hugh is with us, Taiwanese-American journalist, founding editor of New Bloom magazine. And in Washington, D.C., Michael Swain is director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program, longtime U.S.-China relations analyst. His books and briefings include America's Challenge, Engaging a Rising China in the 21st Century. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Uh, Brian Hugh, let's begin with you. You're 
right there in Taipei, where uh, where Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, has just left, along with her congressional delegation. Can you talk about the significance of this trip? That's right. And so, as mentioned, this is historic in the sense of this is not taking place in 25 years. Uh, but what's also interesting is that there has been such a large response. Under the Biden administration, there has more been the pattern of announcing these kind of visits after they take place. This gives China less of a window to react. But news of this broke much earlier, once there was a scoop by the Financial Times. And so then there have been weeks of discussion. But I think then what is interesting to note, or what is significant to note, is that while Taiwan would directly be in the line of fire from China, there was actually not panic the way there was in the international world and much discussion of it. I think there was not a lot of attention paid to that Taiwanese and their own threat assessment of what this will lead to. And so we'll see about the exercises, because China claims they'll only last for three days, and it does want to play them up as a blockade now, but that is to be questioned. And Brian, what what's your sense of the reaction within Taiwan among the the uh, the Taiwanese people to uh, and the government as well to Nancy Pelosi's efforts? There have been some reports that even in among uh, within the Taiwan government, there were concerns about her visit. I think the general public was not actually aware that this was really taking place until very recently. There is even a joke on the internet nowadays that people thought Pelosi was the name of a typhoon, that something was coming, it could cause chaos, but it was a typhoon. And so now this visit happened, uh, but it is also questioned under what circumstances it took place. There's a report from a very pro-China media outlet, which has been reporting on as taking funding and editorial direction from the Chinese government directly. The report claims that Taiwan tried to turn down Pelosi to disinvite her, fearing the dangers, but that Pelosi was still insistent on going. That's hard to say. Uh, it's hard to know the veracity of this report, but the Taiwanese government is not in a position to say no to the U.S., even when it comes to issues that might put it in the line of fire. And I'd like to ask Michael Swain, uh, here we are less than uh, uh, a year since the disastrous end of the 20-year U.S. occupation of Afghanistan, just six months since uh, Washington's efforts to expand NATO triggered the Russian invasion of Ukraine and a conflict that's destabilized the entire world, pushed us closer to a nuclear war. Why would our political leaders risk at the same time a new confrontation with China, our planet's rising economic power and its most populous nation? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, I'm not sure I know the answer to it, why they would uh, want to do this at this time. I think the administration was not, in truth, terribly happy about Nancy Pelosi's decision to take a congressional delegation to Taiwan at this time, but they certainly knew about it well in advance, and they could have done a lot more to try to discourage it, but they did not. Um, and I, I guess from what they've been saying since uh, her visit there, that this is really no big deal. There's no difference here between what she's doing today and what's happened in the past, that they think the Chinese will sort of shrug and say, OK, well, I guess no big deal. But of course, that is not exactly what's happening. You've got, if anything, the reverse. Um, the Chinese have embarked on, as you said in your setup, a series of military actions here that rival or exceed the military actions that they took back in 1995-96. And uh, it's very hard to see how the Pelosi visit has helped or advanced Taiwan's security in light of this kind of Chinese reaction. Audiobooks may have started out as an accommodation for the blind, but of course, now millions more benefit from the ease and convenience of audiobooks, and you may not need me to convince you about audiobooks, 
but I do want to convince you to switch and start getting your books from Libro. By far, the best way to purchase audiobooks is by subscribing to an audiobook club for a flat fee to get one book credit each month, plus a discount on any other purchases. And this deal may sound familiar as the audiobook arm of the big box store in the sky offers just such a plan, but while they are trying to squash the little guy, Libro is explicitly fighting for the independent booksellers. For just one example, Amazon works to sign exclusivity deals to lock up books from big-name authors to their platform, which prevents indies and even libraries from having a chance to compete. I mean, competing with other businesses is one thing, but keeping books out of the grasp of libraries is downright unethical. On the other hand, Libro is a special purpose corporation designed to share their profits directly with indie booksellers in partnership with Bookshop.org. So it couldn't be more clear. Make the switch and join Libro through our link to let them know we sent you. Go to bestoftheleft.com slash L-I-B-R-O. That's bestoftheleft.com slash Libro. And of course, there's a link in the show notes for your convenience. Alex, what is China saying about Pelosi's visit to the U.S.? What is Xi Jinping saying to his own people? What is he DMing to Taiwan's leaders? What do we know for certain about how China feels here? So they're unhappy, right? So what they're planning, again, is some sort of increased aggression in the sense of missile strikes into the water, airplane incursions, ships, etc. But what they've been saying is like, look, in a call that we're told lasted more than two hours, she warned President Biden, those who play with fire will perish by it. It is hoped that the U.S. will be clear eyed about this. And he says that a lot. It's a pretty evocative phrase, but Chinese state-run media commentators have basically been threatening, and right, they take their cues from the leader and from the government, like they, they would consider shooting down Pelosi's plane. There's no real risk of that. Sorry, I should say, not say no real risk. It's like you know, point zero 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 one percent. That would that would be a calamitous uh, moment. But there is fear in the White House and elsewhere from what the Chinese are saying that like this is going to lead to short-term, perhaps medium-term escalation. And that's something, you know, no one can really afford at the moment, especially with the Russia-Ukraine thing going on. So, you know, what China is basically saying is like, you should have stopped her from going, uh, you know, Joe Biden. The fact that you didn't is a signal to us that you really are trying to escalate this moment because, look, it's a Democratic Speaker of the House under a Democratic president. Um, And, you know, whether or not we know that it's kind of hard for Biden to tell Pelosi what to do, that doesn't translate well elsewhere in the world. They go, okay, well, obviously this is a signal, even a wink-wink signal. So a very unhappy China about this uh, event. What do China's threats about Taiwan actually mean? What has happened in the recent past that we might worry about? Well, I think we should first know that even though they might be sending signals to the U.S., it's mostly for a domestic audience, right? Mm. We got to remember where Xi Jinping is here. And, and, I, and I, I try to always emphasize dictators have politics, too. So Xi Jinping has a party congress this fall, the 20th Communist Party Congress, in which he is both trying to finalize his forever rule and trying to get past some of his own policy preferences, And there are parts of that Communist Party that do not want him to lead for life and do also consider him weak. 
And how weak does this make Xi Jinping look if Nancy Pelosi lands in Taiwan, you know, a, a weeks, months before that party conference? Hmm. It is unsurprising then that she is and, and his you know apparatus is putting out tons of messages, signaling strength, signaling they would shoot down the plane. You know, showing that they would do more military stuff. If Speaker Pelosi visits Taiwan, said the Chinese foreign affairs spokesman, it would grossly interfere in China's internal affairs. Um, being quite, you know, boisterous <laughs> about this uh, visit. He warned the Chinese military would never sit idly by. And again, part of this is just sort of what happens in China, right? That you, you, when something goes wrong, you, you, you show your strength, you, you roar a bit. But of course, the problem everyone knows that like China doesn't want at the moment a war with Taiwan because it doesn't feel like it's ready, and it would basically shift the entire narrative of what China is trying to do, which is a, a quote unquote peaceful rise, and could jeopardize its its perhaps ultimate goal of being the world's top power, right? If it effectively launches World War Three, so it is for the U.S. You know, in hopes of like why not try to stop Pelosi from going? Especially if you do, you could make the Biden administration look weak. So that's a win-win. But it is also mostly for the domestic audience of like, she is unhappy and he will respond strongly if this happens. So it's a bit of a dual game here. Alex, would the U.S. get involved if China and Taiwan went to war? What do we know about this? The U.S. has a, what's a policy of strategic ambiguity. So we do not say whether or not we will defend Taiwan, even though we've you hmm. know, given billions of dollars to, for Taiwan to defend itself. Like that's basically our policy. You, Taiwan, defend yourself. We'll help you do so. But, you know, whether or not we will come to your defense will leave strategically ambiguous. Uh, now, President Joe Biden three times has said the U.S. will come and defend Taiwan. Um, and each time his staff has walked back his comments saying the policy hasn't changed. He himself has said that. But, you know, when you on three occasions and you're the president kind of go, yes, it is our policy to defend Taiwan. That ups the ante. <laughs> That's almost you know, de facto changes the policy, you know, whether a future president sort of continues that or follows a strategic ambiguity of since 1979, we don't know. It does feel right. It does feel like, you know, if it, if it was 50, 50 before it's like 55, 45 now that the U S would do so. In which case we're talking about really a massive <laughs> conflict here, uh, which would also bring in, you know, Japan, probably South Korea, um, other U S allies, and, and who knows what else? It would be as close to World War III, if not World War III, than you'd ever seen. What, Alex, is a war between China and Taiwan most likely to start over? Well, anything that could spark a miscalculation and lead to mistrust between you know, the U.S., uh, Taiwan, and China. And Pelosi's visit isn't like the perfect thing for that, but it's darn close hmm. because it feels like Right. If you're from if you're in Beijing right now, you're going again, you know, the second in line to the presidency, you know, after the president and, and the vice president themselves, it's the speaker of the house of the same party as the president going to Taiwan to basically go democracy, small d, you know, is good. Human rights is good. We stand by Taiwan. Then you have Chinese military exercises in response to that because of Xi Jinping's own political needs. You know, he's got to act tough which will then lead to some sort of perhaps stronger response from Taiwan and the U.S. And who knows, this could spiral out of control. That's sort of been the big issue here, is that something small-ish causes a series of miscalculations and escalations that eventually leads to someone doing something very stupid and starts a war. Again, I wouldn't say Pelosi's visit is it. We have precedent, right? Former Speaker Newt Gingrich was there in 1997. Tons of American lawmakers have gone to Taiwan. 
this isn't new, but the fact that China's responding so you know angrily to this <laughs> could lead them to do something dumb, which leads Taiwan and the U.S. to do something dumb, and then everyone just sort of dumbs upwards into a war. There has always been an inescapable tension at the heart of U.S. policy towards Taiwan. We recognize one China. China is the country with which we have relations. But we're still helping to defend this island that China wants to reintegrate to defend itself. It was always going to be a band-aid over an irreconcilable problem. And so the reason it becomes such an issue is because, you know, it's a tinderbox, right? It, it's so fraught with danger. It's There's so many potential pathways to miscalculation that the last thing you want to do is just sort of light the match. Pelosi going there isn't necessarily the match, right? But it is like her basically lifting, you know, taking the matchbook out of her pocket and going, hmm? Um, so there's a reason everyone's sort of angry about this. And especially with the time that we're in, like, do you really want to even risk a second bigger fight? Not that it's likely, but you don't want to risk it. And the problem with Pelosi's visit is that it does risk that unnecessarily. Nancy Pelosi landed in Taiwan uh, late on Tuesday after reportedly being dissuaded from that trip by President Biden and the Pentagon for fears of exacerbating tensions between China and the U.S. Uh, as it's the highest level visit to Taiwan since then Republican House Speaker Newt Gingrich visited back in 1997, I believe. Uh, I have noticed Russian media has been absolutely obsessed with the well, with the possibility of this visit now for for several days. And they frequently argue that the U.S. is meddling in China's sovereign affairs uh, in what seems to me to be a way to distract from or uh, counter what Russia themselves are doing in Ukraine as a Russian expert and as Director of Grand Strategy at Quincy Institute. How does the uh, the Pelosi visit to Taiwan affect Russia? And is it an ill-considered move amid these uh, increasingly tense relations between China and the U.S.? Well, um, from the Russian point of view, um, their uh, relationship with the West is over. Um, they no longer have any realistic possibility of good relations with Europe and the United States, you know, anytime soon. So this war in Ukraine has made them almost completely dependent on China. Um, and, you know, from Russia's point of view, the Pelosi visit is a godsend because, you know, up to this point, the United States has been attempting to, through, you know, persuasion and coercion, uh, to prevent the Chinese from really providing serious backing to Russia uh, in the war in Ukraine. And the Chinese have been quite ambivalent about this, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, they uh, have, have been hesitant mm -hmm. to side openly with the Russians in this. Um, and what the, the Pelosi visit essentially is doing is, uh, you know, exacerbating tensions between the United States and China in a way that will only encourage the Chinese 
to side more overtly with the Russians. And, and you know, the, the ultimate problem from our point of view would be if the Chinese provide the Russians with real military assistance in all of this. That, mm-hmm. that could have a quite decisive effect on prospects on the battlefield. Uh, so, uh, you know, the Russians are essentially thanking uh, Nancy Pelosi mm. for, you know, exacerbating the U.S.-Chinese relationship in a way that could help uh, Russia form a much closer, uh, more cooperative partnership with China. We depend heavily on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you. And that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and in many countries illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other less scrupulous shows, they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleft.com slash support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support. It's knowable to say that there's a power imbalance here, right? Because the Taiwanese government officials are not necessarily in a position to turn down a U.S. Uh, politician of her stature, given the United States' commitment to defending Taiwan militarily if China does choose to escalate. But the U.S. has not really contested China's sovereignty publicly over Taiwan since the 1970s, so it's a very delicate balance here. Um, and that is independent of our views on uh, uh, Taiwan self-determination, because I, of course, I think Taiwan should be able to be independent if it so chooses, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the United States as a third party and its posture potentially escalating conflict between China and the United States. And this also comes after... The bill just passed the Senate, the CHIPS bill, which is explicitly written in a way that escalates rhetorically at the very least and also economically a rivalry between the United States and China. And I just think history should tell us that we should be wary of these kinds of escalations um, based on the Cold War and the fallout from that. And it's a complex dance, but... Uh, Nancy Pelosi threw a wrench in that, uh, presumably against the wishes of the Biden administration, against what most diplomats and uh, people in international relations and government and people who analyze this from the outside, against all of those recommendations. And here she is in Taiwan responding to the outcry about her visit, which I think should have been a bit more specific, frankly. 
But I think it's important to note that members of Congress, several of them had made trips just earlier this year. Five senators, bipartisan, came, again, including the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, Mr. Menendez, came. Not too much of a fuss was made. Individual senators have made trips or plan to make trips. And uh, I just hope uh, that uh, it's really clear that while China has stood in the way of Taiwan participating and going to certain meetings, that they understand that they will not stand in the way of people coming to Taiwan. That's a show of friendship, of support, but also a source of learning about how we can work together better in collaboration. So, it, yeah, no, I, I don't, I think that, that um, they made a big fuss because I'm speaker, I guess. I don't know if that was a reason yeah. or an excuse because they didn't say anything when the men came. More female conflict escalators, right? I mean, uh, I cannot believe that she took that tack, but naturally, I guess that's something she falls back on. Can we pull up this thread from this Harvard professor who's done actual work in this space? Um, he spoke about why her visit to Taiwan was, um, so, uh, such a, such a terrible idea. Do we have this? Here's William H. Overholt, thread. Pelosi accomplished much in Taiwan. She stimulated cyber attacks, got thousands of businesses banned from exporting to China, shut down the important cr uh, cross-strait communications tool Weibo, elicited mainland military exercises, and stimulated an, an imminent temporary blockade. Could scroll down. Long-run consequences are more important. She raised tensions at the time when tension is already excessive. She damaged uh, Xi Jinping when he is ensuring his third term and is under attack for being weak on Taiwan. This forces him to take especially strong ongoing measures. She irritated allies who want support against China but fear U.S. provocation of China. From Australia to Japan, they resented not being consulted. And by the way, this is at the same time that the U.S. is doing its annual military exercise off the coast of China with uh, other, uh, other Asian countries. She made the U.S. look weak and divided by, uh, by ignoring the advice of most, the most informed parts of the executive branch. Biden made that worse by insisting he couldn't influence her, and Blinken made it worse by appearing supportive after uh, the fait accompli. She raised the baseline for future military signaling which to show seriousness will na uh, now have to start with exercises completely surrounding Taiwan and likely blockading it. The added tensions will imperil vital efforts to get China to agree to guardrails that would limit the risks of accidents, misunderstanding, and unwanted escalation. What she didn't do was strengthen Taiwan or U.S. support for Taiwan in any way. Trump, Pompeo, and Biden already pushed that support to a point that jeopardized the 19th uh, uh, nine, uh, 79 understanding which is the foundation of Taiwan's enjoyment of peace, prosperity, and democracy. Her visit was not just a rerun of Newt Gingrich's visit a generation earlier, which occurred during an entirely different relationship between the two countries. It was a political stunt that took a dangerous situation and made it more dangerous. Um, and uh, I mean, I thought that that was very well put, frankly. The, the, the 
reality of the situation is that, as I said, kind of at the start of, of the show, um, the the stakes for Nancy Pelosi are very different from the stakes of the people in Taiwan. As I mentioned, there I think her visit was concealed up until the very last moment, partly because they want to take China by surprise to a degree. But it also I, there were memes reportedly circulating about her visit that no one even knew who she was. And yet she's going there as a political stunt in order to kind of put a capstone on her decades of China hawkery or anti-China hawkery, I should say, in the House as her career comes to a close soon, hopefully. That seems to be the consensus about her motivation. Um, but we don't face the risk of military threat or violence based on this kind of visit and provocation. Taiwan does. Taiwan does. And so for her to conflate and say that just because past government officials have done this, she's third in line to the White House. She's Speaker of the House. There's a, a yeah, understanding. I have to say on that, like this is not to downplay the significance of it is to um, basically plan people's ignorance of how it's being greeted in Taiwan, which is a major, uh, like you said, third in line um, coming to visit them, which doesn't happen. Yeah, of course. And so because of the historical reason, like both Taiwan and China think they're China, like for historical reasons, right? Like this isn't some sort of like, this is a very complicated historical and political problem. And uh, yeah, I think Pelosi and I, I also just want to note some people are saying that we can't really know for sure if this was against the wishes of Biden and Blinken will not that just take their word for it until they classify like communiques and stuff like that. But it really it, it's what it seems to be is like sending a message um, to the world post Ukraine uh, that we're the tough guys still. And I don't that's not a message that I want uh, Pelosi sending. And for people downplaying military exercises because of this and the show of force by China as they were uh, shooting live ammunition and missiles across uh, uh, in the waters outside of Taiwan, think of how you would feel if you were in Taiwan. Um, I think there's really an arrogance surrounding this discussion, frankly. We don't know how that feels. And... Um, no one seemed to think this visit by Pelosi was a good idea, and I really wish that the coverage about it treated uh, the decision with the respective disgust that it deserves, frankly. I think the important point here is to understand what the larger context is uh, of the relationship and the understanding reached between the United States and China regarding Taiwan at the time of normalization back in the 1970s and recognition in 1979. At that time, China and the United States basically reached an understanding over Taiwan, which was a very contentious issue at the time. And in order to try to neutralize that issue, the Chinese basically made a statement that they would pursue peaceful unification as a top priority. They wouldn't give up the possibility of use of force because they regard Taiwan as sovereign Chinese territory and a sovereign state can exercise military force over its own territory. However, they said, we will no longer seek to liberate Taiwan by force as our policy. We're going to try and peaceful unification for years and work on that. By the same token, China said, OK, we recognize that China is a legitimate government 
the PRC is a legitimate government of China, and we do not challenge the claim by China that Taiwan is a part of China. Now, they didn't say they officially recognize in a legal sense Taiwan is part of China, but they said they don't challenge it. So what you had here was the one China policy, peaceful unification. Now, what's happened since that time is there's been a steady erosion on both sides in the level of their apparent commitment to those original pledges. And Nancy Pelosi's trip, this latest trip, represents yet another movement away from the different understandings and stipulations and procedures that were basic to the one China policy that the United States had been pursuing for years. She flew over to Taiwan on an official U.S. military jet that looked like Air Force One. She described her visit in Taiwan as an official visit. Um, She publicized it in a very major way, unlike Newt Gingrich, who went as Speaker of the House 25 years ago to Taiwan. Newt Gingrich went to Beijing first. He stopped in Taiwan very briefly and then moved on. The Chinese didn't like it then. But now what Pelosi has done is much larger scale than this, much higher publicity, much more the trappings of an official visit. And that is really a basic violation of the understanding that the United States and China reached at the time of normalization, as I say. And there have been a lot of other developments over the years that have moved Taiwan closer and closer to the U.S. Can I ask, actually, why we are talking about a 50-year-old agreement without talking about the wishes of the Taiwanese people in the slightest, justifying that the present actions China takes are somehow justified towards Taiwan because of these two imperial powers, the U.S. and China, deciding on the fate of Taiwan. I think there's often a misperception that Taiwanese people are irrational, pursuing independence at all costs, even if this means regional conflict. But I think if you look at the way Taiwanese people vote, it's pragmatic. The path they think will the path that they think will avoid conflict will allow them to train their democracies. And so I don't know then why we're talking about 50-year-old treaties by imperial powers as though this were the left-wing or progressive position here. Well, I, the the, pro, the point here now is not so much what. The Taiwanese themselves are saying in this regard, what I was just saying was about the United States and and U.S. policy. The issue here, my point is, the one China policy and the peaceful reunification agreement and understanding provided Taiwan with decades of stability and development. And that sort of relationship should continue. It should continue. And, And right now, shifting on both sides by both the Chinese and by the United States away from this original understanding is actually weakening security for Taiwan. It's undermining Taiwan's own security. The Taiwanese don't want changes in the status quo. They want a continuation of the status quo. And that's not what they're getting. But will that occur? I mean, you look at the fate of Hong Kong. You look at increasing Chinese threats directed at Taiwan. Uh, Even if Taiwan, you just claim as though it would do nothing and then things would be all right. That's not the case. China actively tries to undermine Taiwan. For example, there are Taiwanese that are kidnapped by China. Uh, for example, Li Mingzhou, who is one of the people that Pelosi met with today. Obviously, this is a political stunt, but there's that. You look at the police crackdown in Hong Kong, the detention of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and these do not offer alternatives that Taiwanese people think of as peace. China is a power that is expanding. It wishes to expand. It wishes to challenge the U.S. It is modeling itself after the U.S., even using anti-terror discourse drawn from the U.S. war on terror. And so then why do you think that China would simply allow Taiwan to let live? That's not how imperial powers work. I'm not, I, don't, I don't generalize to, to imperial powers across the board. They all behave as such. I don't want to get into that kind of argument because you get into all kinds of exceptions when you talk about that. But in this particular case, 
I think the issue is what best serves Taiwan's security interests over time. If you assume that the and Chinese so have, have absolutely, Chinese if you assume that the Chinese have absolutely no interest whatsoever in maintaining, in avoiding a conflict over Taiwan, that they're just basically preparing to attack Taiwan, seize it, and hold it, then we are in a different kind of situation from what we have been in for the last many decades. And I would not assume that the Chinese are developing or focused primarily on a policy of invading, seizing, and holding Taiwan. They're not stupid. They understand that that would be a huge roll of the dice. What they would prefer to do is to establish a relationship with Taiwan that was one in which Taiwan became increasingly inclined towards dealing with the mainland in some political way and could resolve the situation peacefully. That's what they'd like. Now, the Chinese have not been doing things that make that more likely. I'm not letting the Chinese off the hook here. I'm saying that the Chinese themselves have also been doing things that have been changing the status quo. Yes, they have been raising concerns in Taiwan and in the United States, and the United States has in turn responded to this by doubling down on deterrence. So what you have on both sides now is a heavy emphasis on military deterrence, heavy emphasis on worst-case outcomes, very little real communication about Taiwan and where Taiwan's status lies and how you can stabilize the country. You've got this posturing going on and this positioning going on between both sides that is not serving the interests of Taiwan at all. If, if I can, if I, if I can ask uh, Brian, following up on this issue of the, of the, the, of the, uh, the rest of the world not taking into account the aspirations of the Taiwanese people, if the Taiwanese people do wish the majority of them for independence from China, is it the responsibility of the United States to defend tai- Taiwan's viewpoints? Why should the United States be the country that is constantly the policeman of where, where democracy is expressed in the world? Well, it hasn't been. I mean, the U.S. backed authoritarian dictatorship in Taiwan for decades under Chiang Kai-shek and his son, Chiang Ching-kuo. And now in the present, Taiwan is a geopolitical chess piece for the U.S. to be traded off, perhaps, or it raises stakes for negotiations. That was very visible under Donald Trump. You know, some idealized him in Taiwan. And then now at the present, the view from Americans is that, well, we should just fork over Taiwan to China, that this is the way to keep peace. It seems very convenient logic for people from an imperial power in order to always maintain this. So what is the outcome that we hope for? It is not conflict on either side. There will be enormous losses, Taiwanese or Chinese, more Chinese perhaps, in fact, based on some of the estimates of an invasion. So how do we avoid this outcome? But we cannot assume that China will be an active, rational actor here when it is increasingly authoritarian. Seizing its interests are not those of the Chinese people. For example, provoking a crisis, losing an enormous amount of tens of thousands of young people, that might be the way for Xi to maintain power. It might be the way to expand power for him. It cannot be then just assuming that the CCP will act rashly, always just hoping for Taiwan to become willing to join with China. Because what we see is that it takes a velvet glove approach sometimes, offering economic incentives. At the same time, it tries to set examples, which we see in Hong Kong, Tibet, Xinjiang, authoritarian repression, uh, drilling in the South China Seas, uh, territorial claims disputed with other Southeast Asian countries in the area. And so there's that. This world is not just that between the US and China. And we cannot act as progressives or leftists, seeing things in a bipolar world, seeing no other agency from any other force. We need to think of ways out of this binary. And I don't see that happening.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Al Jazeera explaining the two Chinas and the United States' strategic ambiguity. Today Explained looked at who was supporting Nancy Pelosi's Taiwan visit. Democracy Now! also discussed Pelosi's trip. Today Explained explored the internal politics in China. The broadcast looked at how the situation in China and Taiwan is going to impact Russia. The Majority Report highlighted that Taiwan, not the U.S., is the most likely to get caught in the crossfire of imperial brinksmanship. And Democracy Now! hosted a debate over whose interests should be centered by progressives. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from On the Media, looking at the history of Hong Kong, another quasi-independent region in China's orbit. In 1997, the British hand over sovereignty of Hong Kong to China, and there's this elaborate ceremony where the British flag was lowered, followed by a few seconds of silence, and then the Chinese flag was raised. Speaking for the British monarchy, which had ruled 800 million people only 50 years ago, the Prince of Wales. The eyes of the world are on Hong Kong today. I wish you all a successful transition and a prosperous and peaceful future. And in those early years after the British evacuated the island, we see a new historical narrative emerging from Beijing. And Democracy Now! looked at escalating international tensions through the lens of the threat of nuclear war. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned this week humanity is, quote, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. He made the comments at the opening of a major U.N. gathering here in New York to review the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. The meeting comes at a time when tensions are escalating between the United States and two other nuclear powers, Russia and China. This is part of Antonio Guterres's remarks. The clouds that parted following the end of the Cold War are gathering once more. We have been extraordinarily lucky so far, but luck is not a strategy, nor is it a shield from geopolitical tensions boiling over into nuclear conflict. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, I know, I know, sorry if you want to know how to avoid perishing in a nuclear war— that's for our premium members only. And we finally reached peak late capitalism. But look, it's really just that that clip was slightly off topic, which usually means it's a good candidate to be a bonus clip. So I didn't plan for it to sound like the worst membership pitch in history. And yet, here we are. So to hear that and support the show, sign up at bestofleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. So at least there's that. To wrap up today, I really don't have any more to add, uh, except that that is for complicated reasons. I mentioned at the end of the neurodiversity episode, I believe, that I've been working on a new project. And, you know, since I have ADHD, I often jump headlong into new projects that never end up going anywhere, much less being completed. So that may very well happen again with this one. But in the meantime, this project is taking up a lot of my time and attention and has me doing lots of research on interesting topics, but they are topics that I am not at all ready to talk about. So I can't just like pick and choose a few interesting ideas that I've been reading up on and talk about them here at the end of the show. 
There was an incident on Twitter recently that reminds me of my own situation. I, I think his name is Jason Stanley. He's like a quasi-famous, uh, I think, professor and author, writes about anti-authoritarianism, that sort of stuff. And he, he, he wrote on Twitter recently about something that requires a whole lot more context than he was able to give on Twitter. And he just sort of threw it out there and I think went actually viral, you know, like started trending because people were piling mostly hate, but also some support on him. And that, that sort of feels like what would happen to me? Not exactly. I mean, I'm not going to start trending or anything if I talk about something on the show, but the, the point is everything I've been researching, reading, thinking about requires so much context and the thoughts that I'm trying to pull together are so nuanced. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to have nuanced thoughts about things that people generally don't uh, think too deeply about. And so to try to pull any of those ideas and chat about them for half a dozen minutes is, uh, well, it's a danger zone. So I'm not going to do that. But then on the other hand, it's been taking up so much of my attention that I don't have any brain space left to have any thoughts about anything else. I, I think members even heard on a recent bonus episode that we we had to, I mean, at least on a bonus show, we could take more time and space for it. But one of the topics that we discussed had to be from my research because I didn't have enough brain space to have another topic <laughs> to uh, to talk about. So that's that's how things are going right now. And it's very odd because I'm getting a lot of enjoyment out of this project I'm working on. Like I sank my teeth into it and, and now I'm a dog with a bone. But like a dog with a bone, it's very hard to pull me away from that project to get me to focus on something else like what I might want to say at the end of a podcast episode in the final comments. And so here we are uh, without me having much to add. But if you'd like to help, your particularly voicemails, but also emails are a great source of inspiration. So if you'd like to start a conversation, get me to think about something else for a few minutes so that I have things to talk about here at the end of the show, keep your comments coming in, as always, at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me directly to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to all those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our patreon or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player and if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to discuss the show or the news or other shows or articles you've read, videos you've seen, anything like that, or, or practically anything at all. Links to join the community are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.